Welcome to another episode of the Dentology podcast where we discuss the business of dentistry. In this podcast series we'll be discussing all the non-clinical aspects of dentistry from goodwill values, finance, marketing, how to buy and sell a dental practice mindset through to where you can invest your money in team management issues. My name is Andy Acton and I'm joined by my co-host Chris Strevens. Let's jump straight into it. Welcome to another episode of Dentology, the Business of Dentistry podcast. Uh, today we're joined by Liz Hughes. Hello Liz, how are you? I'm very well. Very Thank you. Good, you good guys? to see you, Liz. Very good indeed. Thank you for joining us today. Um, before we get into talking about uh, practice values and dental practice sales and, and that whole world, could you perhaps just give us a bit of an introduction as to your background and how it was you ended up in dentistry? Yeah, um, I've worked in legal services for many years on the management side, a bit like herding cats. And um, the firm I was working at in 2006, when there was a change in the contract, was a firm called RHW that only old people will re- probably remember now. And uh, we specialised in, it was a general service law firm, but had a special interest in dentistry, a guy yeah. called Martin Whiteman, <laughs> yeah, that Martin. you will know and love. Um, so I worked there and during the time I worked there, I got really quite interested in working with the dentist, the dental side of it on, and um that was my interest, really, and my way into oh, dentistry. Wow! wow. So, on the, so the stuff that you delivered for the law firm that was on the the business and marketing side of the law firm. Yeah, um, because it was a full service law firm, we had six or seven offices throughout the region where I worked. It was very right. much on the management side and um, communication and business development, which is still a probably dirty word in some law firms, but probably quite important. <laughs> a very important part of work. And isn't it? And the reality is that um, whatever industry, profession or business you're in, there has to be a business development commercial dimension to it. Because if, if there isn't, then that's not running a viable business, is it? Well, and you need strategy. And actually what you need is strategies that can be implemented into action because it's really easy to put lots of strategies down on a piece of paper, but actually making them work, making them cohesive and actually engaging the people that are actually implementing the work in the strategies is really important. So business development is probably more like that than it is about going out for lunch or networking which people tend to think the BD is. Absolutely. So we were going to have a chat to you today um, about the goodwill of dental practices and, and, you know, what it means and and what it is and and where the market's at. I'm guessing that we're now coming out of lockdown and on the back of COVID. Um, So there was an assumption that that dental practice goodwill values were going to get absolutely slayed through that process. But before we get to that, just to kind of a little bit of context, what actually drives goodwill values? What is it that, 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 you know, the the inputs that, that matter to it? I think the most basic driver is demand. So if you have a dental practice in the right area where there's a great demand, that will drive the goodwill value. And the goodwill, we always say there's two lots of goodwill. One is the tangible one. So that's the evidence. That's the financial reports. And the other one is the intangible, which is the relationship within the practice, the relationship with the patients and relationships between the staff as well. But the big driver of goodwill has to be... um, the demand of the of the, of the market. Typically, what's the demand like at, at the moment across the UK? Is it is it is it fairly flat or is it is it high demand? No, when we went into the first lockdown in March 2020, which seemed like a mm-hmm. lifetime ago now, um, the general concern from everybody was we had no idea what was going to happen. And actually, what surprised 
us was how many associates wanted to buy a practice because they suddenly realized how vulnerable they were working as associates. We heard some great stories of um, practice owners who really looked after their associates. We heard other stories where practice owners didn't quite know what to do with their associates. But overall, what we saw was the vulnerability of the associates and the realisation that if they were a practice owner, they'd have more control of their own future. So we just saw a massive um, influx of young associates wanting to register and looking to buy a practice, which when we uh, went into lockdown in March, surprised everybody. And did you I think. find that there were sort of geographical variances that, that maybe weren't there before? And has that sort of changed? I think in the past year, it's been quite interesting, and I don't think it's just dentistry. I think one of the things that we saw was um, regional dental practices. Um, <clears throat> if you think from June, when they were allowed to open again, regional practices um, were busier because people who maybe historically had worked in cities were working from home, that people who um, were taking advantage of their commute, mm -hmm. visit their dentist, no longer had to do that. So what we actually saw was um, so city centres, particularly London, the city area, which has always been a very busy, popular area, um, was relatively quiet still because people weren't commuting. Whereas regionally, all the local practices were benefiting and actually building a, a larger patient base wow. because people were working from mm -hmm. home. So a bit like houses in that sort of thing, that people were moving out, finding places with gardens and rooms. And that is that the same with dental Absolutely. practices, the areas that might not have been so popular before now became popular? Without, without a doubt, and, and definitely when you spoke to dental practice owners uh, within sort of the regional areas, they had all seen a benefit. So if you think of every city in the country, there are areas mm. around there all benefiting And you were from saying it. about the, the buyers as a big influx of, of new buyers. Is, do you think that's possibly just a knee-jerk reaction to the pandemic or do you think these people really want to buy because i guess from what you said it sounds like there's a disconnect between the number of buyers that are out there relative to the number of practices because like i say i know lots of people have had their their lifestyle challenged in the last year and i wonder whether some of those people that kind of said i want to buy a practice it was almost as kind of a reaction as opposed to they'd really gone through the process of thinking that they they really do want a business I think it's a combination. I think there were certainly a few people that said, um, this is so scary, I want to be a practice owner. But overall, um, the ambition to be a practice owner has always been a very strong ambition of most associates that we deal with. I mean, pre-COVID, pre-lockdown in March, we were probably running with 4,700 associates registering, looking to buy within England and Wales. Um, and certainly now we're way over 5,000. And because we actually vet everybody financially to make sure that their aspiration to buy a practice can be followed through with reality, these guys are committed to it because they've actually gone through a vetting process for us to be able to establish that they are in a position where they can buy a practice. So, so the ones that were knee-jerking, A, were very few and certainly were filtered out very right, yeah, quickly. Yeah. And so flipping to the other side of the fence, we've got you know, uh, this huge pool of, of, of buyers. And then you've got people who are also selling. But from, from a selling point of view, what are the characteristics of a practice that make it attractive to buyers? You know, we've got these 5,000 people wanting to acquire practice. What, what, what are those, those traits of a practice that make it desirable? Um, it's really quite interesting because it's a, a massive combination of um, personal reasons and commercial reasons. So, um, from, from, the, from one point of view, people are looking to buy because it's an area they want to be in. 
they've maybe moved to an area or they plan on bringing family. If you think most of the associates looking to buy are of an age where they're probably getting married or they're probably thinking about starting a family or they have a small family and that's going to be a big driver. <coughs> Excuse me. It's um, the makeup of the practice. Is it fully private? Is it fully NHS? Um, a few years ago, NHS practices, as we all know, uh, were incredibly popular and that popularity has never gone away. But what we see now are most the most attractive practice is a mixed practice. So any buyer can see they can service their loans because they've got the NHS contract paying them regularly, um, but also the opportunity to develop on the private side. Because again, if you look at most of our young dentists looking to buy, they are quite aspirational. So they want to develop the private. Aesthetics dentistry is more and more popular. Um, and the demand is also there as well. Did that so, mix of income, the desirability of mixing of income, did that change through, through the mm -hmm. pandemic? Was, was there a, a shift more towards plan-based income and away from independent private because people were scared about the, the risk of that not recovering? Well, one of the, the most interesting things during the lockdown in the first three months when practices couldn't be open, every practice owner I spoke to who had a capitation scheme yeah. had benefited mm -hmm. from the fact that none of their patients walked mm -hmm. away. They had a couple who went on, you know, took holiday for a couple of months, but nobody lost a patient off the capitation scheme and it became very much their saving grace to the extent that several practice owners that I know, any new patients they take on board now, they insist that they join the capitation scheme. It's not an option. Mm. It's this is what you have like to do if you want system. to use this. And it's protection, but it's also, again, it's a really reliable source of income. And when the banks are looking at funding, um, they look at a capitation scheme and say, that's great because we can see how much money you're going to be bringing in every month, as it were, if you had an right. NHS and, and contract. On type of practices that are attractive, does it matter freehold or leasehold? Is there, you know, everyone wants a freehold, everyone wants a leasehold, or does it not really matter? Um, historically, freehold was a big driver. But when we had the crash in 2008, um, the banks took quite a hit on property. So they, they really did struggle on the property element. So moving forward from 2008, which feels like a lifetime ago now, um, the banks were less um, keen on freehold purchase and more keen on leasehold. So oh, they'll say we'll lend against the business, but we won't lend against the, the building. Whereas historically, the building came, the fabric mm. of the building was mm. really important for the bank. Um, most of our, and, and if you flip it, our principals who own the freehold um, have the options now to put it in, put the freehold into a pension into what's called a SIP and then they can turn it into a lease most of our buyers would like to buy the freehold oh. at some point but financially if they're putting down a deposit of 10 or 20 percent depending where they are in the UK buying the freehold might be a step too far so we always try and encourage the our principals if they own the freehold and are open to selling it in the future um, to put in what's called a preemption right into the lease, which gives the buyer the security that should the building ever be sold, they get right. first dibs. So it doesn't make any value. difference whether you're selling a freehold or a leasehold, as long as it's a, a, a desirable practice, is a desirable practice, irrespective of freehold or leasehold. Yeah, and there's definite tax advantages to the seller should they sell the freehold at the same time as they sell the business at the moment, though that possibly is going to change in the next two budgets, I would think, because they're going to attack, I think, mm. business asset disposal. Um, but also, 
what we say, if we have the funnel as wide as possible, then we have mm. more choice for them. So if we can market it freehold or leasehold, then it doesn't exclude people who might be Is looking for one or the other. Is that the old entrepreneur's relief? That's the, the old benefit of the yeah. 10%, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I think it's liable to mm. come under attack either in the November statement or next We've March, quite potentially. A lot of debt to repay, haven't we, we are country, aware. So. We do. <laughs> and also, I guess if you don't sell the freehold and you retain it as somebody who's selling your practice, you continue to receive the rental income anyway. So it's not it's not a disaster. It just means you don't get the capital out in one go. You no. get the rental income and then you can dispose of the property later on. And I think that's that's another part of the conversation, which says you need to look at how much yield, rental yield you'll get from the freehold if you turn it into a lease compared to how much tax you might save if mm. you sold it in the first place. And if you do mm. over a period of time, it's very much swings and roundabouts. The other point at the moment is that we are seeing bank valuations. Um, we made a decision to continue valuing at pre-COVID levels because we could explain to anybody why there'd been a dip in income over those few months. Um, the banks are supporting our valuations as they've always, we've always been very lucky because they're so robust. Most of the times our valuations come in, the bank are continuing to hit the figures that we or align the figures that we are with. But we are definitely seeing freehold values. Um, the bank's being very prudent over freehold values because I think they're really frightened of catching another cold again. So I don't think at the moment it's the most sexy mm. offer to us of principal to sell a freehold. I think if they held on to it, they probably would see a benefit in three That's or five years' time. Isn't it? Yeah. The goodwill business values are holding, holding up, up. Yeah. whereas the freehold element is potentially yeah. a, a negative, mm. maybe not a negative, but a, a bit of a detractor from the overall deal because there's the nervousness of the surveyor in what yeah. the freehold market yeah. might going to become. Absolutely. And I think if you look in other, in other industries, freehold within those industries might be more challenged because suddenly there's going to be an awful mm, lot of office mm. space that's available that was very sexy and demand in demand a few months ago a few years ago whereas dentistry doesn't really move mm. from where it is and also on those numbers you were saying there's like five thousand plus people out there looking to buy a practice i imagine that the seller has an amount of control as to whether they choose to sell the freehold or create a lease anyway because there's a lot more buyers than there are sellers is that is that fair no, absolutely. And that, the biggest challenge that we ever have is if it's leasehold and the, the landlord isn't the principal, because historically, and we are going back a few decades now, a, a dentist would set up a squat, would buy the building, would work in it for 30 years, sell it on, and then he would retain the freehold and create a lease. So a lot of our um, principals used to mm. be the landlord's. Um, over time, that's changed. So we have what's called third-party landlords, and they're not engaged because they're just bothered about renting out oh, their property. Right. So, so is there a lesson there on third-party landlords that if you happen to have one to sort of make sure you, you get it sorted or get it in order before you, you come to sell? Otherwise, I, I'm, you must have numbers of stories where people haven't, and it's cost of money or time or whatever to sort it out at the wrong time. Mm. No, absolutely. And and when people say, my landlord's <laughs> lovely, I've known him for years and we play golf on a Sunday, my heart sinks slightly because the landlord won't have played golf mm. with the new owner and will probably want to take advantage of making mm. the rent more commercial than it might have been in the past. And also the one thing that I am seeing at the moment is third-party landlords are worried about 
dental practices along with any other business because they don't understand the security of dental practices. So we, um, and we're not allowed to talk to the third party landlords. So to get the message across to them that the practice is safe and secure is quite challenging. Mm, it sounds like it. I suppose, especially if they've got a portfolio of, as you were saying, these offices and maybe retail, mm. uh, neither of those are doing particularly well. Whereas, as you say, dentistry is sort of solid, isn't it? And that's it, really? a shame, isn't it? If you could get through to those people and let them know that it's healthcare it's dentistry, it's low risk, they're not going to be affected by another lockdown and required to close in any shape or form. I think a landlord's view may change towards mm. how they view dentists. Oh, absolutely. And I think the challenge that we have at the moment is um, most practices are having a very good time financially uh, for, for a variety of reasons. And the challenge at the moment has to be, is this mm. a spike or is this a trend mm. going forward? Um, and it's too, too too soon for us to tell yet, but most dental practices are having a better year, even with three mm. months out, than they've had mm. the year before. It's tricky to value though as well with that, you know, is it sustainable? What was the reasons? It must be quite hard from a valuable point of view to try and make sure that you've got a robust valuation that, that isn't sort of over-egging mm. the proverbial pudding, really. It is, but I think that's where experience comes into play because we, um, the methodology that we use to value a practice isn't reliant just on the last six months or the last year. We look at so many different areas. We look at what kind of practice it is. We look at what was sustainable in the two or three years before. And, and in some cases, they've taken lockdown. They took the first lockdown to take massive advantage of either doing a marketing strategy, putting a new website in, actually moving into cosmetics aesthetics which i hadn't done historically and you can see that it will be sustainable going forward whereas if someone was in an area where they've just happened to have a really busy six-month period we have to reflect that in our values because we don't value the future we value the past and and that has to be our the solid robustness of our valuation is based on evidence that we can show rather than assume that next year is going to be if, if this year is this and next mm. year could be double that it makes which sense, might not be the case. you can't sort of suddenly say i've got a fourth surgery so therefore no. my practice is going to generate x pounds so therefore my practice is now worth mm. more money just because i put a fourth surgery but also i think it has i think the rule books have been rewritten you know lots of dental practices continue to open you know a typical nine to five and perhaps close an hour for lunch you know we're seeing lots now that are opening longer hours um, and, and weekends and I think that rule book of way business generally operated has been rewritten and, and I think there'll be people doing things now going forward as part of their ongoing strategy that they never dreamed of doing 18 months ago I'm smiling so I'm just thinking about the post office in the village absolutely. Oh, yeah. that's right yeah some, some, some people have gone Maybe the other not. way yeah, yeah. some people have gone the other way yeah yeah, I think he quite, he quite yeah. enjoys his yeah. short days and his long, his long yeah. moments yeah. that he hasn't got much customer. Jump, jump into the end of the process, Liz. Um, so and, you've got the property side and then the seller, the seller sells and um, you know, the money changes hands. Um, there's often discussion about whether the seller needs to stay on post-completion or not. Kind of, has that changed? Where's the mood of, of, of whether the seller actually needs to stick around after they've got their money and the deal's completed? Um, I personally don't think it's changed very much at all. Historically, we used to talk to dentists at about 58 when they were starting their 
succession planning. Um, for the past four or five years, it's on average there have been 52. Because if you if you look back, it's been a, it's been a very strong market for, for many many years now, and a lot of our sellers have said. Um, I mean, back in 2013, we had a flux of sellers who just wanted to get away from the the pain of CQC as they perceived it to be. Um, but actually, a lot of our sellers have said, I just want to do the clinical work. I want to go back to being a clinician. Mm. I don't want to run a business. I don't want all the headaches of HR and employment, which every dental practice I ever go into, HR employment is always one of the red flags that they, they, they say I've had enough of. Um, but most of our principals will, without a doubt, would want to stay on for a form of handover. And we always encourage that because that's the easiest way for the transition of the business from one person or one company to another company. Um, and also we build it into our sales perspective. So if somebody wants to work two days a week, have 10 weeks off in the summer, never work on a Friday ever and be paid whatever, and the buyer can build that into their cash flow and wants the, so the principal to stay on, then that's what they do. So the, the person who's buying the practice is very aware of what the principal wants because actually when I'm selling a practice to the principal, I want to get him the best deal, but I also want his future to be what he wants it to be. So if he only wants to work on a Tuesday and play golf the rest of the week. It sounds like there's a fair amount of choice in there. It doesn't sound like it's it's mandatory that you need to stay on for, because where people sell um, to a corporate, they, they do need to stay on for an extended period of time, don't they? Well, that, that's a totally different deal because every corporate will want the principal to be tied in for three, some of them are five years, and they tie them in by not paying the full uh, amount at completion. So, for example, they might say, we'll give you 80% at completion, and then you'll get the 20% over the three years, providing that you maintain the turnover mm. as to where it is or agree a turnover mm. figure. So it's also about risk appetite because some of my principals will say, I want 100% because the minute I sell my practice, I'm yeah. no longer in yeah. control. And, and I think it is about risk appetite. But I also think from the corporate point of view, um, they have to bend slightly if the practices mm. they want are in competition with individuals who will still pay I the same what amount the of money. corporates are like. I mean, from uh, if you don't hit your, your target, I sort of get the feeling that uh, if you don't hit your target, you don't get your payment. You know, it's not like a, a generosity bank. The answer is you have to hit head yeah. X, you only hit Y, so you've lost 5%. And then I suppose you then got, as you, you say this, you've got the thing about that you might be better off having 100% of a number in your pocket now as opposed to maybe 70% of a marginally higher number in your pocket, but then wait yeah. three or five years to get it and reliant upon the actual delivery of that figure anyway. And, and I think, I mean, d dentists like talk to each other. So whenever I, I meet somebody who says, well, my friend sold to a corporate and this is what happened to him, um, it becomes folklore, yeah. even <laughs> if it isn't the case. So for a lot of our principals, they don't particularly want to sell to a corporate because they don't want to be tied mm. in. They don't want to miss out on 30% of the value of their practice. But also the corporates own the practice. The principal stays at the practice the team still moan <laughs> at the principal because they think he's yeah, sold yeah. out to a corporate, so it's his fault. Um, so sometimes they don't get the and best the bulk of either. Practice sales that you're doing to corporates. 
No, we are really fortunate in the sense that we sell to corporates, but we will always say that we won't just sell to a corporate. So if we have a practice that we put to market, we put to open market. So we don't just invite the corporates to bid. Um, There are some practices which are only going to sell to a corporate because they are so large and an individual want to buy them. But what we are seeing, you know, dentists are brilliantly entrepreneurial. So what we do see are associates joining together, They'll buy one practice between them. They, they sort of learn from that. And then suddenly they want to buy three or four practices. So we call them the mini corporates. And they're, they're not really mm. a corporate body at all, but that's what they're growing into. And um, so our principals get the choice of the corporates, the smaller corporates and the individuals. And then they're allowed to choose the person or the entity that they think is right for their practice. And the loveliest thing about for me when I work with principals is they're Yes, they want to get some money in their back pocket to prove that what they've done for the past 20, 30 years has been worthwhile. But they want to make sure mm. their staff are going to be looked after. They want to make sure that their patients are going to be well well looked after. And they want to be able to walk down their high street four weeks later and, and someone say, this guy's lovely that's bought your practice, as opposed to, well, mm. who did you sell out to? So they have all those different levels that they, they want to, to tick all their boxes. And, and because we have a strong market, because we vet all our associates to make sure they're financially viable before they go in front of anybody, most of the time we can give a selection of choice so the principal can really make a personal decision. And some make a business decision and say, I just want the most money possible and I'm never going to think about the practice again. And that's absolutely fine. But that's in my knowledge. The, the list of things that you you reeled off, um, the mm. amount of non-financial considerations in there is quite long. Yet the, the common perception is that all people want to do is sell their practice for the most yeah, money yeah. possible. But like you say, I hadn't thought about the one of, you know, when you're walking down the high street, you want to be able to see your ex-patients and smile and nod and talk to them as opposed to feel that you've got to cross the road and avoid people because, you know, the way that you exited the practice uh, was uncomfortable for, for you or for the patients. Absolutely. I mean, it's not unusual for principals to have second or third generation mm. families sitting in the chair. And equally, it's not unusual for them, second or third staff. So it's amazing how many practice managers, daughters are mm. now nurses or associates there. So... And they've built a business um, as clinicians, not as commercial business owners. So their desires to build a team around them or their patient loyalty. How many times do you hear people say, I don't like the dentist, Mm. but mine's lovely? And and can the individuals um, compete with the corporate buyers, you know, prices? Because that seems to be sort of what you hear is now corporates have got Mm. all the money. They're the ones buying all the practices. Um, Is that... No, absolutely, absolutely, without well, the, shadow the buyers of doubt. Can. The, because the buyers. the buyers certainly can, because when we value a practice, we're not influenced by who's no. going to buy it. So we don't put a different value on because it's a corporate buying. Um, we do what we call a sealed bid process. So we put a practice to market, people go and view it. We say it's worth X. If people want to really want that practice, they can put what's called a premium on, so they can pay a sealed bid. Um, we don't horse trade, so we don't say you need to put another five on the end of it or something because we believe the value that we put out to the market is the actual value. The banks will believe that's the actual value. So if somebody wants to pay a premium, they've got to say, 
evidence it and also evidence the mm. fact they have that cash. So um, from that point of view, sometimes our sellers will earn more than what they expected, but it won't necessarily be driven by a, a corporate. And you've also got to remember that some of our associates are buying because there's a specific mm. reason. And it's not unusual for people to say, I've walked past this practice for 10 years and my kids go to school there. I live 10 minutes away. I love the building. So this is a place so I've a always wanted to be the overall. purchase. It's not just commercial. And I guess Absolutely. I can see where that would be different to a corporate. A corporate, mm. I guess, pretty much works to a spreadsheet and says, this is the value. Whereas if it's the practice that, you know, you've walked past or is near your kid's school or is close to your parents or whatever it might be, There'll, there'll be a little extra yeah. emotion that you might pay over and above mm. somebody else. And that might be the difference. So which, that's which where your premiums you come from. Which means it? you get it. I mean, we've got one at the moment where um, the, the, prince, the person who wants to buy it, her family have lived in that area for so long. And the family are supporting the purchase financially because they don't want her to move away. <laughs> That's a real non-financial, oh. non-dentistry dynamic. Yeah. Isn't and it? for anybody else looking yeah. at a practice like that, that's really hard to compete with because that's not based Absolutely. on um, maths or calculation or value. That's a, a family working together mm. uh, on an emotional level. Mm. Just, just, just stepping away from kind of yeah. the individual value bits, um, the, the process to buy or sell a practice from from the outside looking in, it, it feels like it's extraordinarily long. Why why is the process such a long process? Are there certain things that, that just have to happen? What 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 is, what is it that's from the inside? From from the inside looking out, <laughs> it is extraordinary. It really is. Um, <clears throat> yes, it's. Um, I can only compare our sector to pharmacy, and um, I know that a pharmacy transaction can go through in two, three months, and that's not unusual. From our point of view, there are so many external players in the game. Um, getting all your ducks lined up in a row is really challenging. So we have a buyer and we have a seller. We have a buyer solicitor, we have a seller solicitor. We possibly have NHS England um, who are there. We have CQC. We have a bank valuer. Um, we have insurance underwriters. Um, we have so many different touch points that it takes us, we would say a good transaction, private would be four to six months, uh, NHS element, even if it's a mixed practice, you're looking really at six to nine months to get through. Um, so, and it's really challenging on both sides. It's challenging for the seller to remain motivated when they can see the end is in sight and uh, they're having to produce a ridiculous amount of documentation and and i say ridiculous in the sense that we buy and sell dental practices we always insist people use specialist dental lawyers which they do and all the specialist dental lawyers buy and sell dental practices all the time but there isn't a uniform due diligence requirement so there isn't one set of due diligence questions that everybody uses so every law firm has their own set of questions and the, the seller has to commit to getting this information together and it can be 70 pages long and they have to do it in the evenings or at the weekends because their staff are not aware. And if they're lucky, they, their wife or their partner might be the practice manager and that can make it a bit smoother. So until they've done their due diligence, the clock doesn't start ticking. And then in the background, you've got CQC requirement and CQC used to take 12 weeks. They're now saying it can take 16 to 20 weeks. So you can see why there can be delays 
but it's just trying to get it all to flow in the right direction and aligning everything so it's mm. all happening on, on the due diligence right side of things is that something that because obviously that sits with the seller because they need to assemble that package of information is that something they have to wait until the sale process is underway before they can start or, or could they could they kind of earn some weeks by getting that done in advance yeah, the one thing that we did is we went out to all the law firms and, and, and said, well, how do you collate your due diligence? And we put together a guide to due diligence. So we've amalgamated as best we can the areas where it's just general information. And yeah, we also always encourage them to start putting the information together, even when it comes in from the other side solicitor, they might have to move it around or get extra bits. Um, and I always say they can say no if they don't know the answer, because some of the questions are so bizarre that you say, just say no. And then if the buyer solicitor is worried about it, they can ask for more information. Or sometimes the buyer solicitor will be commercial and say, mm. that's fine, I'm not bothered. So it's, it's, and it's also about um, getting the lawyers to work well together. So we always encourage, once we know who, what side one person is using, then we always encourage the other side to, to work with a solicitor that we know works well with the other side solicitor. So we don't have, um, unfortunately, so a matchmaking service that goes on as well. Huh. <laughs> I never thought of it that <laughs> way. I'll try yeah. and call it a name. <laughs> Tinder. Yeah. I know someone's got that one already. <laughs> Yeah. And so you you get to the end, and obviously you've you've been involved in hundreds of transactions. What what how do you kind of capture that kind of overriding feeling? How do people feel when they get to the end of selling a dental practice? Well, what is it? What what, what is it that that is it that euphoric moment? Is it exhaustion? What what does it sort of look and feel like for people that might be about to get on this journey? I think it's a combination of two. I mean, we try and manage everyone's expectations and say it is quite a challenging process. And the one thing that we try and do is make sure that we stay in really regular contact with everybody, even if it's to say mm. nothing's mm. happened this week. Um, because I think it's really important that people know there is a flow and things are happening. Most of the sellers, um, it, it depends on the reasons why they're selling, but it, if we're doing it to facilitate retirement, it can be tinged with sadness because it's the end of a career and it's the gateway to the next part of your life. And we say some of our sellers are selling to move forward to something really exciting. Others are selling to move away from something they've been demotivated by. So not everybody is coming at it at the same position. And what is interesting, historically, you would see people would own a practice for 20 or 30 years and then retire. Um, now, it's not unusual for me to be dealing with somebody who I sold a practice to 10 years ago, who've now said, I want to sell because I want to do property or I want mm. to sell because I found an even better dental practice that I want to go into. So it's, it's slightly mm. more transient than it, if it was historically. But the majority of our sellers, when we get to the end, they're delighted because we got to the end of the process. Um, and what's better for me is when I catch up with them two or three months later, when it's actually sunk in, when they are doing one day a week and playing golf four days a week, and they are just enjoying the clinical work and they haven't got the hassle. When someone says, can I have a chat with you for a minute? They say, no, actually I'm an associate and I'm going home. It's life-changing you know, life so stuff, isn't it? That's when it's a good time. It's absolutely life-changing. And also from the associates who've bought it, they've been, it's hmm. a stressful for them during the process because until we get to exchange and completion, it's not legally yeah. binding. Um, 
And the buyers spend a lot of money on additional surveys and additional services. Um, they've got to decide whether to get their notice in or not. And we advise them not to because we don't know. So they're, they're on tenterhooks. And also they've worked as an associate and then suddenly they're the ones working later in the evenings to do all the bits and pieces. And they're the one who've got people yeah. saying, can I have a word with you for a minute? And a they now change, have to say yes. Yeah, a change of so, position. Yeah. They've got yeah. to change the light bulb, isn't it? That yeah. great story. Yeah. The yeah. associate goes and tells the principals the light bulb's broken. Uh, and I wonder how many associates that move into the position of practice owner reflect on how they behaved as an associate mm. in the years gone by and think, actually, I, I'm, I might Absolutely. have to do some things I also think now that there's a big difference in the sense that um, external services, the associates who buy now um, are happier to buy in expert right. services. So HR and employment, which is a massive issue, they recognise the benefit of using a service right. external to the practice, um, equally with CQC, rather than right. try and do it themselves. They'll buy in an expert service. And we encourage that because we say, you've got to think, how much money can you earn doing what you're doing? How much money is it costing you yeah. to bring in an mm. external service that's going to take all your worries away? And actually, it's mind-blowingly mm. stupid not to do it. I was going to ask a question. I think that's probably answered it. Is Have you seen the time that you've been managing practice sales that, that buyers have become, not all of them, have become a bit more business savvy and a bit more business aware? Without a doubt, without a shadow of a doubt. And, and I still think the biggest criticism has to say that they come out of dental school with lots of clinical knowledge, but they mm. have very little knowledge about not even just being business owners. I mean, I came across someone recently who didn't realise that what she was being paid as an associate should have a tax bill at the end of the year. She just thought it had all been dealt with. And That's frightening, at the end of the year, or especially when you think how much associates yeah. can earn. That could be a nasty right, old I mean, there's, tax bill. There's, there's and, something fundamentally wrong with the education system and this is back to school days yeah, yeah. how you can have people who don't understand or were never taught that there is tax to be paid mm. um you know I, I listened to a podcast um Stephen Barton was talking to Noel Clark the actor and the same thing oh, happened to him yeah. the same mm. thing happened to him and he was earning significant yeah. amounts of money and I remember him saying that he was on stage collecting a BAFTA in a suit that he'd borrowed and shoes he'd borrowed from somebody because he had no money and he had this colossal tax bill and mm. that's because he got bad advice from an accountant and that's wrong that you know that, that education and I get the clinical bit is really important but there's a real hole in people's life knowledge and experience if we're not shaping them to yeah. understand basic mm. stuff like tax and hopefully this podcast will go some way to bridge the gap with some basic business information mm. that will be useful yeah and i and i think there's just more yes i think they're generally more entrepreneurial um or their families as well are entrepreneurial mm. understanding but it's also the um the, the understanding that as i say to bring in external mm. experts is the best thing you can do because then you can concentrate mm. on the clinical work. You can concentrate on building your team. The, the important things that only a principal can do, he can focus mm. or she can focus on rather than employment and HR. I always talk about that because that's the one thing that a practice owner will say to me when I go in, which will be, mm. I just yeah. can't cope anymore. If you make anymore. a mistake, and legislation so if you make a mistake, it can be very expensive. Absolutely. It? Yeah, yeah. I mean, a, a terrible example is um, talking to a practice owner 
who bought the practice, um, the principal owned the freehold, created a lease, stayed on as associate. He is now taking them to an employment tribunal and um, is refusing to do anything about the lease, which is outside the Landlord and Tenants Act. So it's all getting very technical. But it's a minefield that could have been completely avoided if they'd had proper HR and employment advice at the time. So it's really uh, important. I think it's a really good, uh, really good final tip to to, to, to leave on. Well, the, the, the... I have. Oh, sorry, go on, I have go one on. more tip, and I know we're running out of time. I have one more tip, which is um, always sounds a bit weird, but um, people need to have ah. a will. And I, I say that because sadly, I get involved in practice sales where a principal may have died or may have had a catastrophic industry and in, in, in injury and can't work anymore. And I had one recently, which was COVID related where the principal who was married, been married for several years, ran a private practice, um, developed COVID and sadly died. And because he hadn't left a will, um, even though his wife is his next of kin, she can't access the accounts. We We can't get the information from the accountant, even though we know the accountant and they know the situation because he died in test state. So she has no right to this information. Practice can't be open because he was a sole practitioner, fully private. It's turned into, I mean, the poor woman's life is devastated and it's made it a well, million times that, worse purely because and that he never got around must to be just going through the floor. Mm. I think it's wow. gone through the floor. I think we've well, gone and, beyond. And, and the complete and the unnecessary stress of, of having that added into Absolutely. the mix when you're grieving to then have to deal with that as well. And yeah. it's, it's such a simple fix because yeah, yeah. because you can get a, a will isn't expensive yeah. and it's not complicated to sort. No, I think that's a that's a really good point. No, and and I think I mean I'll often say to people it's so left field when we're talking, but it's because mm. I experience the mm. aftermath of when it hasn't been placed. It's probably one of my biggest um, bugbears. So when you see it, when you see it firsthand and, and, and you see expensive. the pain and the grief and the stress it causes, you don't you want to prevent anybody else going through going through that as well yeah it's an important point though we also ask our guests we always ask them three questions at the end and the first question is if you could meet anybody you know uh, whether they're with us or whether they're not with us who, who would you who would you choose to meet there's no limits yeah interesting um i think it'd be bill oh. gates and his uh, wife okay. because i think i think they are absolutely um trying to be as philanthropic as they can be and i think they are trying to educate where they can educate and invest where they can invest and and it must be really easy when you've got so much money to think you're okay and not think about yeah, anybody no, else good good choice and i think you're right mm. i think melinda his wife often doesn't necessarily get the credit because bill and the whole microsoft thing he's got more profile but i think as a couple um they're incredible absolutely unbelievable and it wouldn't surprise me if, if he, he's, he's hoped to, I think, eradicate malaria yeah. in his lifetime. Yeah. I think that's one of his big goals, isn't yeah. it, to eradicate malaria in his lifetime. And I think the way he's going about it, he's, he's, he's on course that could actually happen. And they live relatively, relatively simple life, and they're building, bringing their children up in a relatively simple way. I mean, OK, they're doing it from a position of privilege, but it would be very easy to do nothing from a position yeah. of privilege yeah, as well. Sure. And our second question is, um, you can be a fly on the wall. You can be sitting up on the wall, watching down on a situation. <laughs> what, 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 what situation would you like to be a, an observer of? Yeah, well, slightly <laughs> weird, but um, 
my two-year-old granddaughter does the most amazing squats I am so envious of. So she just goes down into a squat and she'll be there for ages. And then when she tries to put her socks on or take her socks off, the look of concentration and determination, um, yeah, it always impresses <laughs> That's really me. really sweet as well. That's nice. And the last one, the last one, you've got two people and you can do a job swap. So you've got two people. So uh, one of our other guests was, was swapping Nicola Sturgeon um, with Billy Connolly because you thought it'd be hilarious to see what Nicola Sturgeon looked like doing comedy and Billy Connolly dealing with you know, the Scottish Parliament. So you can, you can switch two people about. Who, who, who would you move around? We said, I think Nicola Sturgeon is actually one of the franchises. We did did mention that, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Mine would be actually um, Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer. Because um, I I just think it's so easy. And and because we negotiate on deals all the time, you you really get used to Mm -hmm. seeing two sides of the story. And you also get used to the fact that there's quite often a backstory that you don't know. And I think... um, it's very easy when you're in the opposition to be critical. However, if you're in that position, how would you deal with it? And the chances are you'd be doing exactly the same. Maybe not over decorating the flat, I don't know. But you'd be doing probably strategically the same things that that mm. person would be doing. So I'd like to that see them swap this one. Yeah, yeah, and actually, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But also see how long it took people to notice <laughs> that they've actually swapped. If only they'd noticed the hair. I was going to say the hair would be, be the giveaway. That would be the giveaway, yeah. I thought, yeah. Yeah, Lovely, thank you very much indeed Liz. that's been that's been really good really yeah. appreciate your, really your, your your time i'm sure people take a lot of value from this Lovely, thanks a lot thank you for Cheers. listening to this episode of dentology where we discuss the business of dentistry if you like what you heard please do subscribe where you found this episode that would be amazing and also follow us on instagram